Well, good morning. Can any of you uh, relate to that skit? Looking for guidance or direction, wondering what to do, where to go, whom to go with, when to go? God promises us in his word that he will give direction. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, one of the most well-known verses in Scripture, says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and what? He will direct your path. Most of us know that and most of us believe that. And yet so often we're not exactly sure what he wants us to do, what he's telling us to do. We need our eyes open to see what he wants us to do. Today we're continuing our sermon series, 40 Days in the Word. And what we've been doing is, over the past few weeks, looking, been looking at the topic of God's Word, the Bible. We began by looking at how we can build our lives upon the, the Scripture, upon the rock and the foundation of Scripture. And then we looked at some evidence in the next week, uh, for, uh, evidence for God's uh, Word being reliable and, and trustworthy. Last week, we looked at how the Bible can, can change us, transform us, our attitudes, our values, our perspectives, uh, our behaviors. Well, today we're looking at how our eyes can be opened to understand God's Word, to understand the message that He's seen us, to have our eyes opened to see what He wants us to see. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, opened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Um, we're going to begin uh, the message now with that prayer that Paul prayed for his people. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we pray simply as Paul did for the church in Ephesus, that our eyes uh, would be opened, the eyes of our spirit and our heart would be opened, and that we would see more clearly uh, your will for us, that we would see more clearly the things that you want us to see about ourselves, um, about our world, and about you. Lord, we thank you for uh, the promise that when we come to you and, and pray, open the eyes uh, of my heart, that I may see wonderful things in your law that you will answer. And so, Father, now we ask that your spirit would speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So how does God open our spiritual eyes so we can begin to see the things that he wants us to see? Well, Jesus answers this question uh, pretty clearly in several places. And his answer is, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the means by which we grasp what God is saying to us through his word. For example, in John 14, 26, Jesus said, The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. In other words, Jesus says, The Holy Spirit will teach you and remind you of my truths, my message. Jesus said a little bit earlier in that chapter, in verse 17, He is the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. The Holy Spirit is the one who leads us to understand what truth is. John 16, 15, Jesus said, The Spirit will take from what is mine the words of God, the words of Jesus, and make it known to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us, reveals God's truth and helps us to know the application of relevance in our lives and in our world. 
With that in mind, and praying for the Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning, I'm going to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of uh, the Bible that we don't preach out of very often, the book of Numbers. It's the fourth book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then the book of Numbers, chapter 22. We'll be looking at today an example, a negative example, of a man who chose to ignore what God said to him, who did not listen to the Spirit of God, who was blind to see what God wanted him to to see. Now, to put our passage in context, uh, the situation is this. God has delivered the uh, people of Israel from slavery, and for the past 40 years or so, they've been wandering in the desert. They are on the verge of crossing over the Jordan River into the Promised Land, and and, and there's a man named Balak, a king, uh, who has heard about all the, the triumphs and victories that God has given the Israelites, and he's scared to death. He's the king of the Moabs, the Moabites, and he's scared to death that this huge mass of people will defeat him. He knows that he's no match for them and for their God, and so what does he do? He turns to fight fire with fire. He turns to the supernatural, and he tries to hire someone to put a curse, a hex, on Israel. Look at verse 5. This is King Balak speaking. A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. Now King Balak, that's somebody he's talking to here, is the main character in our passage today, a man by the name of Balaam. And Balaam is sort of a spiritual mercenary. He's an opportunist. He is a medium who doles out blessings and and curses and spiritual advice for a fee. Look at verse 7 of evidence of that. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Now to Balaam's credit here, after consulting with God, he turns down the offer because God tells him in verse 12, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on these people because they are blessed. A second time, Balak sends men with an even better offer. He's not used to getting a no. So he sends him with a better off. He sweetens the pot. Listen how Balaam answers them now in verse 18. Even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now stay here tonight, as the others did, and I will find out what else the Lord will tell me. So Balaam goes back to God a second time, even though he got to know the first time. We find God's answer in verse 20. Since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. Okay, having said that now, we have the table set. Let's pick up the story now in verses 21 through 33. I'm going to read that for you. Again, follow along in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Verse 21. It gets kind of interesting here. We find Balaam, we find the Lord, an angel with a sword that's drawn, and a talking donkey. Verse 21. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a sword drawn in his hand, she turned off the road into a field, and Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between two vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it, so he beat her again. 
Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and, was ang- and he was angry, and he beat her with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool of me. If I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, I am, am I not your own donkey, whom you all have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed down low and, and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away, I would have certainly killed you by now, but I would have spared her. Now, other than the fact that there's a a talking donkey, what else strikes you as strange in this passage? At first blush, it seems that Balaam is getting in trouble with God for doing what he got permission to do. Verse 22 states that because Balaam was going, God was very angry and sent an angel with a sword to stop him. But yet he had gotten permission from God just a few verses earlier to go. Kind of feels like when you have a spouse and you ask them if you should do something and they say yes, you do it and you get in trouble for doing it. I'm speaking hypothetically this morning, of course. Mark told me about his experience. I'm just kidding, Corey, wherever you are, don't be angry at me. Anyhow, what what exactly is going on here? Balaam asks for God's guidance. He receives it. He acts upon it. And now God is opposing him. What gives? Well, as Paul Harvey used to say, now for the rest of the story. Once Balaam reaches King Balak, three separate times, instead of cursing Israel, he blesses them. And three times he says, did I not tell you I must do whatever the Lord says? We see that a little bit later in in, in verses, uh, chapter 23 and following. Nothing wrong so far. But in chapter 25, we see something that's a, a curious development. The men of Israel, we're told, begin to get involved with the women of Moab. And in the process, they begin to make compromises. They begin to sacrifice to Baal. They begin to worship Baal, who is the god of the Moabites. They're being disloyal to God and to his laws. They're sinning. And because of this, we're told, there's a plague and thousands of Israelites die. How did this happen? Who's the culprit, the catalyst, the mastermind behind all of this? The answer is Balaam. In chapter 31, verses 15 and 16, Moses says this. Have you allowed all the women of Moab to live? They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord so that a plague struck the Lord's people. And just before those verses, a battle between Moab and Israel happens with Balaam fighting on the side of the Moabites, and he ends up being killed. You know, it's said that eventually a person's true colors will be exposed, and that certainly was true in regard to Balaam. In the end, he was proven not to be loyal to God. He was not kindly disposed towards Israel's people. At some point, we're told, he sold advice to the Moabites about how to weaken the Israelites. 
Listen to 2 Peter 2.15. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Peor, who loved the wages of wickedness. In Revelation 2.14, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Now, what does all this have to do, you may be asking, with opening our eyes to see what God wants us to see, to find his will, to know his guidance? Well, first, if we want to see God's guidance, if we want to see what he wants us to see, we must pursue his direct will and not just his permissive will. Let me explain. God very clearly told Balaam the first time not to go to see Balak because Balak was an enemy of Israel with evil intent. It was a very clear no. And he went and offered, uh, when, when he's offered rewards a second time, instead of rejecting the offer, he already knew God's answer. It was very clear. Instead of rejecting the offer and sending them back on their way to Balak, Balaam asked them to wait here for the night. I'm going to go back to God and ask him a second time, obviously hoping that God would change his mind and let him go. J. Vernon McGee wrote this. There are certain things that you can keep nagging God about that he'll permit you to do. But my friend, you will dry up spiritually. And there are a great many Christians who could testify to this experience. Do you want God's permissive will or do you want his direct will? Do you want him to give you every one of your prayer requests or do you really want him to have um, his way? Do you want his will to be done or do you really want God to come over on your side and do what you want done? He concludes, the interesting thing is that there are times when he will do just that. You know, God will not force us to do his will. He has given us free will, and he will not violate that. But when we choose to ignore the signs, when we choose to ignore what God has clearly already told us, we do so at our own peril. When we pray, do we pray with an openness to what God wants? Or do we pray only willing to accept what we think the answers should be? An example could be a, the person who prays, God, I, I really want to date this person, even though I know they're not good for me spiritually. God, I really want to buy this house, even though I know we really can't afford it, and I'm going to have to cut some of the things that I do that are important to you. God, I really want to take this job when we move to the city, or whatever it might be, you fill in the blank. When we make decisions, do we seek what God's will is? Or do we push forward thinking that, that if God doesn't slam the door shut, then it must be okay? God permits Balaam to go in this passage, but he's not happy about it. Now a caveat here. Sometimes an appropriate way to find God's guidance in a situation is to throw out a fleece, praying something like, with a sincere heart, God, if you don't want me to go through that door, close it. If you don't want me to go down that road, put up a roadblock. God will answer the prayer, a sincere prayer of a person who truly wants to know God's will. But this is not the case with Balaam, which leads us to the second thing we can learn from this story. If we want to see God's guidance and know his will, if we want to see what God wants us to see, we must set aside our own agenda. You know, Balaam's ultimate agenda here was to line his pockets, not to serve God and to do his will. And because of this, he was spiritually blind. Three times God sends an angel to oppose him. 
Three times a donkey, a dumb beast, see God's messenger and shrinks back from going down the path they're on. But Balaam does not see. He is blinded by his own agenda. In fact, his spiritual blinders are so thick, he doesn't even blink when his donkey talks to him. But God is a God of great mercy and patience, and he displays it here to Balaam. Verse 31. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. You know, God wants the very best for us. I believe that. The, the word that tells us that. God wants the very best for us, and the very best thing is to be walking down the path of his, his direct will. And sometimes, despite our stubbornness and our reluctance to recognize his guidance, to see what guidance, to see what he, he wants us to see, sometimes he will, because he's gracious, intervene and make it very clear to us what we should do. But even then, he will not make us do things his way. We can be so blinded by our agenda that we'll ignore even the most direct signs from God. We get so wrapped up in our own demands about how God should work in guiding us that we can't see or hear that God is speaking to us directly. In verse 34, Balaam responds this way when God opens his eyes. I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now if you're displeased, I will go back. So God's first response had been a direct no. God sends a talking donkey and, and an angel with a sword drawn, blocking him three times. He opens his eyes. He sees the angel there. And he says, well, if you don't want me to go, if you're unhappy about this, I will go back. Now, either Balaam is dense or he's naive or he's looking for a way to keep going where he wants to go. He's not dense. He's a slick operator. He's not naive either. It's a situation where he says one thing, but is really looking for permission. He's not interested in doing what God wants. He chooses his own way, and God lets him go down that path. But all the time, God has been trying to get his attention, but he misses it. Now, we've seen a negative example of someone who chose not to listen to God's word. How can we be people who not only hear God's word, but understand it and do it? Well, we have to set our own agenda aside we, and other things, but, but there's a very basic starting point. If we want to see what God wants us to see, we must have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If we don't have a faith in Jesus Christ, we're spiritually blind, and we have little hope of seeing things from God's point of view. We've got to get that connection established first. John 14, 6, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We must have that connection first, a faith in Jesus Christ. We've got to have a relationship with him. We have to be born again. We have to be saved. And until we begin that relationship, we're only be seeing things from a human viewpoint. And we won't be able to see totally and completely what God wants us to see. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned, spiritually understood. You know, that's why it's nonsense and it's unfair of us as believers to expect someone who is not a believer in Jesus Christ to act like us. 
We can make all the laws in the world to make people act and do the right thing, but they're not going to do it because it doesn't make sense. Our eyes are blinded until we have a connection with Jesus, with God through Jesus Christ. So if we want to have our eyes open and, and see what God wants us to see and understand his word, we must begin with a personal relationship with Christ. Another thing that we need to do if we want to see what God wants us to see is we need to cleanse our heart of sin and conflict. You know, I cannot get my eyes open spiritually if my body and mind is full of junk. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5.8, Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they will see God. There is a, a correlation, a strong correlation between having our eyes open and seeing what God wants us to see. There's a strong correlation between that and the state of our heart spiritually. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, pure doesn't mean perfect. If God only opened the eyes of people who are perfect, nobody would see. Nobody would know what he wants us to do. Nobody would see what he wants us to see. Pure in heart speaks of people who, aren't, who are, are not happy with the garbage in their life, and they deal with it, and they confess it, and they try to deal with it and get it out of their lives. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If I'm over here living my life, and, and I'm watching or reading a bunch of pornography, and then I come to God, and I say, God, I... I need to know what to do in this area of my life. I need direction. I need to see what you want me to see. It probably isn't going to happen. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If I'm out here filling my mind with garbage, trashy novels, magazines, TV shows, and junk, and I'm filling my mind with bitterness and lust and resentment and guilt and anger and jealousy and envy, all that stuff in my mind, all those attitudes in my mind, and I ask God, I need direction here. I need to know what to do here guess what? It's probably going to be a little bit foggy. It's going to be a little bit hard to see what God wants me to see. We must cleanse our heart of sin. It doesn't mean we have to be perfect. We can't knowingly and deliberately hang on to sin in our lives and not deal with it and expect God to reveal things to us. And it's not just our own personal sin. It's also conflict in relationships, that sort of sin. First John 2.11 says this, Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and he walks around the darkness. He does not know where he is going. If we have relational conflict in our life, the Bible tells us that there, that there, is, a, there, is, a, there is a barrier, that we walk around the darkness, and we don't know where we go, we're going. The Bible says we cannot be right with God and wrong with others. We cannot be say we love God and hate others. We cannot be reconciled with God and not be reconciled with others. That's why the Bible tells us that when we come to worship, if we have an issue with a brother or sister, before we present our offering, we are to go to that person. We're to try to make things right, and then we are to go and worship God. If we want our eyes to be open to see what God wants us to see and to understand his word, we must cleanse our hearts of sin and deal with unresolved conflict. In his book, Character Forged from Conflict, Gary Preston writes the following story. Back when the telegraph was the fastest means of communication, there's a story about a young man who applied for a job as a Morse code operator. He answered an ad in the newspaper, and he went to the address listed, and when he got there, there was a large, noisy office. In the background, there was a telegraph clacking away. There were seven other uh, applicants there, and there was a sign on the receptionist's desk which said, fail to form, 
and wait until you're summoned to enter the inner office. The young man did that, and he sat down with the other seven. But after a few minutes, he got up, he crossed the room to the door, and walked right in. As you can imagine, this created a little bit of consternation with the other applicants. They perked up and wondered what was going on. Why had he been so bold? They had not heard any summons. And they took more than a little satisfaction in, in assuming that he would be reprimanded for his presumption and would be disqualified for the job. But a couple minutes later, he emerged from the office with the interviewer who announced, gentlemen, thank you for coming today, but the job has been filled by this young man. The other applicants began to grumble. And one of them spoke up and said, wait a minute, I don't understand something here. He was the last one to come in, and we never even got a chance to be interviewed, but he got the job. That's not right. The employer responded, I'm sorry, but all the time you've been sitting here, the telegraph has been ticking out the following message in Morse code. If you understand this message, come in, the job is yours. None of you heard it or understood it. This man did, and so the job is his. You know, every day God is sending us a message. He's sending us multiple messages. Take up your cross and follow me. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Pray for your world. Pray for your family. Pray for your friends. Pray for yourself. Know my word. Serve. Give. Love justice. Take care of the poor. God is sending us the message that he loves us. There's grace and mercy. Multiple messages each and every day. But so often, we don't enter into his blessing because we're not listening. We don't get the message. You know, every day, God sends messages. And sometimes they're unconventional messages, like a, like a, like a talking donkey or, or visiting angels or a bright star in the sky. But the, the, the method that God chooses to use most, most completely, to communicate to us is his word. He reveals who he is. He reveals his plan. He reveals who Christ is. He reveals his great love and his mercy and his will through his word. But we will not have our eyes open to see what he wants us to do in us and through us until we set aside our agenda and our preconceived notions of how God will work and what he wants us to do and where he wants us to go. The good news, though, is that God is not a God of confusion. He's not coy. He's not cryptic. He will gladly guide us when we approach him and seek him with right motives. He will open the eyes of our hearts so that, he can, that we will see what he wants us to see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, that you promised to send the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us and to, and to help us to understand your truth. Lord, we, we confess that there, we've all been guilty at times of, of coming to you and ignoring your answer and persisting down a path that we know isn't your best for us. So God, help us to be people who have our eyes opened, who are perceptive, who deal with uh, the things, the barriers in our lives, any sin or, or motives that are unpure, to deal with those things that so we can hear from you. God, as, now we, as we come to the table to celebrate communion, we are reminded that after Jesus was resurrected, he was walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples, and they did not recognize him until you broke bread, Jesus, and gave thanks, and their eyes were opened. So God, now as we come to the table, as we break bread, 
as we drink from the cup, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to more completely understand and see the things you want us to see about ourselves, about our world, and most importantly about you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.